Have you ever thought back on your life and noticed that there are these small moments that led you to where you are today? I'm Alan Brooks from Building Momentum. In my new show, Breadcrumbs, I trace the pivotal moments of people's lives that lead them to where they are today. That I was asked to go backstage and I was able to meet Jesus. And I just very distinctly remember thinking, I want to do that. In the sunshine in this leather couch, I found my two big passions. I truly believe as an adult, I'm just trying to recreate that moment. It turns out that that was the beginning of a couple of decades in journalism. And that changed my life. Through storytelling and conversation, our show traces the circuitous trail of how the creatives and intellectuals of today got to where they are. On Breadcrumbs, we'll pick up these crumbs that were left behind and see how they led us to where we are today and leading us to who we're still becoming. Take a listen to Breadcrumbs, an exciting, independently run new podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. My dad sat me down in our living room and he set a stack of paper in front of me and he said, do you recognize this? Yes, I did recognize it, I realized as my stomach sank. It was my prep and goth blowjob story. So my dad gave me this agonizing speech and how disappointed he was in me for even thinking about such things. And then he picked up the story and he ripped it up. I couldn't look my dad in the eye. I couldn't get over the humiliation of watching my dad, who I loved and admired so much, tear up this work that I had been so proud of. But here's the thing. I still couldn't change who I was. I just got better at hiding it. Welcome to Breadcrumbs. I'm Alan Brooks. I'm the Chief Creative Officer at Building Momentum. We are a creative problem-solving agency, and we help people solve problems in super weird ways. And we believe that everyone has a calling, a, a vibration, something undeniable within us. Sometimes we're put on that path toward that calling as early as possible, And sometimes the world gets in the way, but the calling itself never quiets. This show retraces those breadcrumbs, the pivotal moments in our lives, the ones that lead us back to ourselves and who we were meant to be. They can help us find our true calling. And I'm going to be talking to a wide variety of people from all sorts of places and find out how they responded to the calling and what parallel lives might have happened had they ignored it. I'm going to unpack this through storytelling and conversation, and I hope that everyone listening can start thinking about what your true north is and if you are headed in that direction. So let's follow the crumbs back and see where we began and who we're still becoming. Today's guest is Aaron Barker. Aaron's the executive director and co-founder of Story Collider, and she's the host and producer of their weekly podcast and... She's the first woman to ever win the Moth Grand Slam twice, which is a not insignificant deal. Her first breadcrumb was when she wrote a salacious story in middle school and her father found it and then tore it up in front of her. But 
she can never ignore the writer inside. So we've been doing this thing with the show where we ask guests to connect us to somebody else that they think would be great for the show. And like they lead us on a little breadcrumb journey of our own as we find new people to talk to. And we found Aaron through Sam Dingman and producer Adrian, who are in the New York City storytelling scene with Aaron. Our conversation is important because Aaron has that calling so loud and deeply embedded inside her. And she talks about how she could never ignore that, that need to tell stories. It was more than something she liked to do. It was a need. And while she never really deviated from that explicit path of telling and sharing stories, there are certainly twists and turns that led her to where she is today. She's always looking for the human element in the story she tells, which is great because Story Collider helps scientists tell stories from a human perspective. This is an awesome story. It's, it's a great highlight. It's a great conversation of that about that thing that when you feel something so deep inside you that you have to go after it, but we don't always have the benefit and the privilege of a support system to be there for us. But despite that, Erin still followed her passion and followed that calling and found her voice. I do want to let you know that the first part of her story gets a little spicy. There's a little NC-17 deviation there. So if you're listening with kids, be mindful. And let's go follow some breadcrumbs. I was one of those kids who always knew what I wanted to do basically ever since I was born. And the lucky part of that is I've never had to spend years exploring myself, going to college undecided. And the unlucky part of that is that being a kid sucks because nobody will ever let you do what you want to do. And all I wanted to do as a kid was read and write. And I never understood why adults wouldn't just leave me alone and let me read. Day after day, someone would attempt to make me learn something about isosceles triangles or osmosis or the rules to basketball, stuff that I could not have given a shit about. Unless, of course, it was at the center of a compelling narrative. But, I mean, I understood why I needed to know basic math. I needed it in order to count out the correct amount of money to purchase a book. But anything beyond that really didn't interest me at all. So due to all the time that I spent not doing math and science homework, I was a very prolific writer. I'll list some of my more well-regarded titles. There was Tramper, the True Story, which was the thrilling saga of my pet gerbil's untimely death. I'd like to recite a clip for you. I was sad, but happy. I was sad because Tramper died. I was happy because my mom took me to get a new one. I was a super sensitive kid, as you can probably tell. The pivotal moment in the development of my writing career came in the eighth grade, when this popular boy named Sean got a blowjob from a cheerleader and his dick got caught in her braces and he had to go to the hospital. At least this was according to the gossip, which was so pervasive that it was even reaching people on the fringes like me. So that was the year that we all learned what a blowjob was. It was very educational for all of us, not just for Sean. And, of course, as a writer, I'm always inspired by the world around me. 
So I penned a very <laughs> moving short story about a Romeo and Juliet type romance between a prep and a goth, the ultimate divide, as we all know. And this romance culminated in the goth receiving a blowjob from said prep. It was my masterpiece. So as you can see, as I got older, both my writing and my reading were becoming gradually less and less wholesome, which was a problem because my family was very Christian, very specific West Virginian kind of Christian. But for me, I couldn't help who I was. And who I was was someone who very much wanted to read Forever by Judy Bloom. And to be frank, I had a hard time believing Jesus would really care if I did. After all, he was the one who had made me this way. So I just kept reading and writing whatever I wanted to. But it was all bound to catch up with me eventually, and then one day it did. My dad sat me down in our living room, and he set a stack of paper in front of me, and he said, do you recognize this? Yes, I did recognize it, I realized, as my stomach sank. It was my prep and goth blowjob story. There was no denying it. It was clearly my handwriting, and who else in the house would have written a blowjob story? (laughs) Not my eight-year-old little brother. So my dad gave me this agonizing speech about how the contents of my story were wrong and how blowjobs aren't part of God's plan and how I should never write that kind of thing ever and how disappointed he was in me for even thinking about such things. And then he picked up the story and he ripped it up first longwise and then crosswise until it was in little tiny pieces. I went up to my room and I think I stayed there for like three days. (laughs) I couldn't look my dad in the eye. I couldn't get over the humiliation of watching my dad, who I loved and admired so much, tear up this work that I had been so proud of. But here's the thing. I still couldn't change who I was. I just got better at hiding it. I saved all my writing on floppy disks, which I hid in pockets sewn into the back of my bulletin board. I still picked up the Robert Cormier books at the library, but I hid them under Anne of Green Gables, which incidentally I also liked. (laughs) And luckily my dad thought the Golden Compass was about talking polar bears instead of atheism and a celebration of original sin. And I say this without any hint of sarcasm or irony, I think that's what Jesus really wants. So, <laughs> how did, okay, so how, so the ultimate question of this is, like, how did we get from there to, like, helping scientists be more vulnerable in public? Which I think is a really noble pursuit and a really important endeavor, especially, like, we, our company, like, I work with a bunch of engineers who come right out of engineering school, but they haven't tapped into it, or it's been suppressed, right? So, oh my God, there's so much to talk about. Okay, so let's let's start in high school. How did you find your way out of that kind of repressive community into the one you found now? Is that did that start in middle school and high school? Did you find your people then? Yeah, I think for me the big thing was letting other people read my writing who weren't my dad. <laughs> In high school, I started working for our student magazine, uh, and I wrote a lot of editorials and things like that, and just seeing 
that you know some of what I had to say resonated with people. Sometimes it also upset other people who weren't my dad, but I I kind of started to find that interesting rather than upsetting or scary. I wrote in the 10th in the 10th grade. I wrote a very bold editorial about how I thought God didn't exist. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. That was the subject I decided to tackle for my first piece. And that was your first piece? It really shook things up in Westchester, Ohio. It's a very conservative town. I got invited to church by like a lot of people, including teachers, after that published. And I actually kind of enjoyed that feeling of being like an iconoclast. You know, yeah. I'd never been controversial before in my life. <laughs> so how did your family react to your iconoclasm? Hmm, that's a great question. I think actually, I don't know if they noticed. <laughs> they might have been the only people who didn't notice. Did they ever come around from the blowjob story? Did they ever find themselves being like, we appreciate what you're doing, but if we don't need to hear about it all the better? Or is it more like your mom is now trumpeting your blowjob story on the local NPR station? You know, they've kind of made peace with it. Now that I'm a storyteller, they kind of have to. I wouldn't say they love it. But they've made peace with it. And mom, actually, we did a show in Dallas. My mom lived in Dallas at the time, and she came out to the show. And it happened to be a show where I had to fill in for a storyteller who had dropped out last minute. And the story that I was telling was about my my actual vagina. And mom was there in the front row. So that was sort of the ultimate test of how far we've come. That's important. It's important yeah. for our parents to... To let us follow our bliss and be supportive of it, even if it's not their bliss. A lot of kids. I mean, I'm 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 impressed that you kept writing after such traumatic experiences. That because that like, there's so much wrapped up in your dad ripping up your story, you know. And obviously, he could have used a shredder to be much more efficient than all the different ways he ripped it up. But like, that's a really traumatic thing, and I can only imagine how difficult it must have been for you to continue writing. I think you probably started realizing early that your your words had power and that they had the capacity to provoke a reaction in others, whether it was your dad or the people in your community. At 14, 15 years old, why keep doing it? What's the drive to continue to do this thing that you know is going to upset people in your in your community and your family? I think hmm, well, writing for me is a compulsion. It's not, you know, something that I can just stop doing. <laughs> so that was never really a choice for me. It did really bother me to upset my dad, especially at that time. And there's a lot of things that went into that, you know, even beyond religion. You know, my mom had recently left my dad for another man. So I think, you know, he was particularly sensitive to matters of sexual immorality <laughs> during this period. <laughs> And I, I hated that I had upset him. When I started letting other people read my writing, I actually found it kind of interesting to upset people. Because mm. um, I think it was just part of figuring out who I was and how I was different from these people that I grew up with. It was about figuring out where that line in the sand was. Yeah. What else did you write? What else did you find yourself falling towards because I kind of want to figure out how you got from you know adolescent blowjob fiction to scientific engagement so you were on the newspaper in high school yeah and it was kind of a dream 
for a while because it was so exciting to share my writing and put ideas out there for the first time. And I became an editor and my boyfriend was on the staff. He was the opinion editor. I dated all three opinion editors every year of high school. <laughs> You're the second second journalist. The other journalist we spoke to is, is still a practicing journalist. And drama with dating the editor. That was, or she was the editor and he was the publisher. So apparently it's a thing with you people. Yeah. Well, the thing with us was I actually ended up getting the position of sports editor when the sports editor was fired, as traditionally every sports editor is about a month into the school year. <laughs> They're always like, oh, this guy likes football. Probably he can be sports editor, right? And usually that doesn't work out. <laughs> but, so, but did you like football? No, not at all. <laughs> I like baseball, but not really any other sports. But I applied because I was like, well, this way I can move up the ladder a little bit on the staff, see if I can, you know, take on a bigger role. And they gave it to me because I was the only competent person who applied. <laughs> and so I started approaching the sports section a different way I started including things like the chess club and the color guard and the cheerleading team, which the color guard baked us cookies after we started covering them. Big rewards. You were able to like recognize that you could broaden the idea of what sports meant in that environment. Was that kind of the the mission that you gave yourself? Yeah, and I kind of really enjoyed this idea that I could take this subject that is not very interesting to me. I don't think I'd ever read a sports section of a newspaper in my life at this point. But I could take the subject that's not very interesting to me and make it interesting to people like me by telling stories in different ways. And so the way that I did that is I would kind of hone in on specific personalities in sports at our high school, profile them and, and try to tell their stories. And mm -hmm. I ended up really enjoying it in a way that I hadn't expected. So it becomes about people as opposed to about the, the activity Right. Yeah, I think that's what I do. I just change the subject to people. <laughs> you know, as a storyteller appreciator on the outside from like of the art form of like professional storytelling, which I've always appreciated, like storytelling is tangentially connected to my life. And it it's always about people, it, whether it's Story Collider or whether it's Risk or whether it's The Moth or whatever. It's all about the human element of these stories. It's not none of these stories have ever been like, I'm going to tell you about you know, differential equations and how exciting those are. It's about like why I give a shit about these things. And that's what I should bring you with us to our workshops, Alan. Do it. I'm <laughs> I'm down. I'll get on my, my soapbox and talk all I love it. So junior year was when I became sports editor. Prior to that I had been assistant to the opinion editor, which was my boyfriend, Adam. And so Things shifted a little bit, the dynamic in our relationship, once I was sports editor and we were on the same level there. And I started thinking about applying to be chief editor senior year. And the problem with that was Adam was also thinking about that too. And when we talked about it, he was like, you know, I just don't think you should apply for chief editor because I don't want you to be upset when you don't get it. And he said, why don't you apply for a managing editor? Because then it'll be like you're my assistant again. And that was so great before. Oh, that's so sweet of him. Yeah, right? Oh, he's, he thoughtful. was looking out for you. 
But at the time, everything felt so new to me. And I also, I didn't get good grades in high school. And he was like, very good student. So I just thought, oh, he's right. He he is the best person for this role. I'm just not going to apply. And so I didn't apply. And then he dumped me for the entertainment editor. What? And they're all like tickling each other in the newspaper lab, which had been like my safe place. Oh. It was very upsetting. And what a then... gaslighting mo- Screw that guy. <laughs> I never liked him at all. But then he got accepted to my dream journalism school at Ohio University, and I got rejected because of my GPA. So it was a huge bummer, but to me it felt like there was nothing else I could do besides write, and really I had no choice but to try to pursue it in any way that I could. And Ohio University was the only in-state school that felt like it would get me to that place that I wanted to be in. It was very like well-regarded as a journalism school. Um, Matt Lauer was one of their alumni, which is something they do not brag about anymore. <laughs> yeah, doesn't come up anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I put together this portfolio, this binder of all of my clips from the magazine and some other work that I'd done, and I got my advisor to write me a recommendation letter, and I bundled it up and I mailed it off to the admissions committee at Ohio University, and I asked them to reconsider. And a few weeks later, they called me on the phone, and they told me that they were going to accept me. That's incredible. Yeah, it was completely unexpected. Nothing like that had ever happened to me before where somebody had changed their minds. <laughs> That's That must have been a pretty pivotal moment. There had to be part of you that looking back is like, ah, they knew I was right. Like I, I got validation. Somebody else sees me. Did that come through then or was that something that you you found later? Yeah, I'd, I'd always had this chip on my shoulder because my grades were so bad. And I felt like I was not as good as other people or not as smart, even though, you know, maybe if I'd done homework at any point, my grades would have been a little bit better. <laughs> but Who are we to know? Yeah. <laughs> but I had this chip on my shoulder and that experience was really powerful for me because it was just a way of realizing that, you know, who I was as a writer, as a journalist mm-hmm. was valuable. Oh, yeah. That I had a shot. That's awesome. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's funny to remember, but at the time I decided to major in journalism, majoring in journalism was a practical choice compared to majoring in English. (laughs) I was like, this way I'm going to get a great job. That's not how it turned out. But (laughs) print media crashed the year I graduated. But at the time it felt very practical Uh, Also, I've always gravitated toward true stories, even as I think you saw in my story, the fiction that I write has a basis in reality. I have very little imagination. Everything is from real life for me. Not a lot of hard sci-fi in your future? Yeah. (laughs) 
it would be too hard for me to imagine all of the details, I think. You know, it's so funny, though. I did an MFA in fiction a few years ago, and so I, I spent a lot of time with fiction writers. There was another track in the MFA program that was nonfiction writers, and everybody, like, mocked them as being oversharers. <laughs> so you had that moment in college that I'd love to talk about where you were in class with your boyfriend. When you had that moment of realization that, like, you might not be a scientist, but there's something in this world for you. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I had kind of just ignored science and math for my whole life, as I think probably comes through in the story that I yeah. told. Part of having ADD is you really gravitate very strongly to what you're interested in, and then your attention just will not budge on its own. Yeah, as I'd never made a a real conscious effort to engage with science before. And I started dating this guy, Curtis, really wonderful person. We were maybe not on the same page sometimes. He was very into family guy and <laughs> weed and golf, all of which, uh, sure. no, I can't appreciate all of those things. <laughs> I can maybe appreciate <laughs> one of them. <laughs> but we weren't really on the same page. Oh. And I started to feel like, oh, this guy needs some direction in life. Let's think about what his interests could be. He was still sort of undecided in college. And I thought, okay, weed and golf. Curtis is clearly an environmentalist. Obviously. <laughs> was the conclusion I came to. I mean, there's a lot of nature involved in both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, he switched his major to environmental studies. And I thought, just to help him out. I'll take this first class with him, this introduction to plant biology, since I needed a science class, any science class at all for my journalism major. And so that was how we ended up taking plant biology 101, plants and people. Like a gen ed. You were at Ohio State at that point? Ohio University. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, pardon me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know there's a, people have very strong feelings, maybe people in my own family. So I will roll that back and we will edit this all out because I would never. I appreciate that. I would never. That was at Ohio University and definitely not Ohio State. Yeah. We had this professor named Glenn Matlack. And the first day of class, he walked in and he was wearing a flannel shirt, big boots, suspenders, and he was carrying an actual axe. Oh, yeah. yeah full on lumberjack. Which is a little atypical for most of my classes. Yeah. And what I like most about this is that he never explained. He never said anything about it at all. And I was very intrigued by this. This is the type of thing that interests a person like me. This is what it takes to get me to pay attention in class because I was just waiting for the moment when he was going to explain. And he never did. But along the way, I actually learned a lot about how the suburbs have destroyed our, our forest cover in the United States and how that's affected wildlife. And I started getting like really engaged with this and really fired up about it in a way that I never had been before. That's awesome. That's so funny. Was it like a light bulb went off or was it like that that's what you wanted to, that that was another thing that you could pursue? Not really. I mean, I did a little bit of environmental writing after that, but I wouldn't say that I was like a convert to science okay. at that point. Well, when did that I happen? I think, hmm, has it happened? That's a good question. <laughs> Seriously, has it? I mean... Uh, don't, don't air that. I'll get in trouble. <laughs> and then, so what happened after, what happened after college? Did you, 
like you found yourself stay, you stayed in Ohio or you you left Ohio? I left Ohio as quickly as I could. <laughs> Graduated a quarter early just so I could get out of there. I moved to New York, which had kind of always been the dream, even though I'd never been to New York before in my life. I wanted to work in publishing. I wanted to tell stories and help people tell stories, and I just felt like this is going to be where the best stories are, right, in New York City. (laughs) This is where the most important ones are told. Me and my boyfriend, who had never lived in the same city before, moved into a studio apartment together. Was this Curtis or was this new boyfriend? No. No. This isn't Curtis? Curtis (laughs) is still in Ohio somewhere? Playing Curtis golf is and a park weed. ranger now. He's very happy. He's married. To Curtis somebody. is a park ranger. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that's you did that. <laughs> I think he did it on his own. A small portion <laughs> of our national too. parks is protected because of your. In- you did that. That's on. <laughs> I'm putting that on you, as well as I know Curtis. That's that's on you, Aaron. That's amazing. Good for Curtis. I'm very excited. I hope he's playing golf and still getting high as well. I think he is. Good. Good. <laughs> so you and new boyfriend, though, went as far away from the national parks as possible to one New York City studio apartment, living the dream of what was first job in New York? I was working for a telecom business news company as a copy editor. So I know I knew as much as you could possibly know about Ethernet without actually knowing what Ethernet is. I love Ethernet. I'm a Cat Six man myself. Some people do Cat Six A, but I I, like, I think that's a bit overkill. But I'm here for it. See, I have no idea what the hell you just said, but I, I could make it grammatically correct. I full I appreciate you. I full on <laughs> I, I wired my house for Ethernet before I moved in because I'm because I wanted the the highest quality of speed between my devices. No no wireless connection for my Xbox. I admire that. Thank you. I appreciate that. So when did, I mean, New York has has easily, again, in my kind of outside observation, seems like it is the home of the live storytelling movement. Is that fair? And I think so. Yeah. Because you were there like at the perfect time. I think we're not terribly dissimilar in age. So like you were there in the mid like 2000s ish era when you got there yeah i moved here in like it's 2007 okay yeah so like catching that wave of live storytelling how did you discover how did you discover live storytelling and like did you just like run onto the stage as quickly as possible or did it take time like tell that origin story a little bit yeah so all the work that i was doing was very mindless and depressing so i would listen to podcasts while i worked and i started listening to the moth Mm. And I'd hear stories from people like Elna Baker and Ed Gavigan, and I would think, oh, man, this is awesome. And my boyfriend worked at a, a theater, a comedy theater that was offering a storytelling class, and he knew how depressed I was in this job because mm. I had that whole thing where when you're, like, 23 and you're like, why do I not have my dream job yet? I, <laughs> you know? I had that, that impatience, so he was like, take this class. It'll be a good creative outlet for you. I think you'd be really into it since you love the moth and everything. And so I took the class and that was where I met a physicist named Ben Lilly, who had this, what I thought was a really dumb idea of starting a storytelling show about science. (laughs) 
but we became friends. I thought he was super interesting. But we had this grad show at the end of class where we all had to get on stage and tell a story on stage for the first time. And I was just really dreading it the whole run up. I had this really deep fear of public speaking before this point. I would have this like really big anxiety. I would think, oh, maybe I should just like change my name and move to another country instead of doing this presentation in class tomorrow. <laughs> where, where did that where did that fear come from? Uh, I had always just written my thoughts instead of speaking them. I think sometimes mm. for people with ADD, it's easier to collect yourself when you're writing and there's that fear of like speaking it extemporaneously and saying the wrong thing or saying something wrong. I just had a lot of anxiety about being in front of people. Yeah. So the day of our grad show, I totally broke out into hives all up my left arm because I was freaking out so bad. I do wear long sleeves in the summer. Uh, but then I got up there and yeah, it went okay. People actually like laughed at my jokes. <laughs> so I was like, actually, that was kind of cool. It's a really invincible feeling to face a fear and, and to sort of get away with it like that. And so I just wanted to do it again and again. That's awesome. How did you internalize that? How did talking, telling your stories on stage differ for you either emotionally or or – um, creatively than writing those stories? And are you still pursuing kind of both? Are you still writing and performing? Or is it kind of one of the same, like two parts of the same thing? Yeah, what I loved about live storytelling was the immediate feedback. It's also what's terrifying about live storytelling, but that's what I loved. And, I, you know, I had always written these pieces, like for my school magazine when I was in high school I wrote these columns and people would tell me they were funny but you know I never like stood over them and watched them read them to see if they actually laughed or not <laughs> but when I told a story on stage I could hear people laughing and and even bigger than that, I could hear people gasping sometimes which was my <gasps> favorite what <gasps> yeah <laughs> I'm like I know that was shocking oh my god <laughs> that's so cool. I'm so impressed that that you were able to fight through that because I feel like that's a an easy inflection moment for somebody to, to go the other way, right? And to not just like grin and bear it. And even if you even if you hadn't had the discovery of, oh, I didn't die. This is actually someplace I feel really safe and happy. That at least you would have done. It, it's just impressive. I'm impressed because not everybody can do that. Oh, thank you. So did you and Ben then like keep collaborating after class? How did it grow from one story on stage to what it, the the behemoth of scientific storytelling that it is today? Yeah, Ben had recently quit being a physicist, which I didn't know was a thing that physicists ever did, and moved to New York to go into theater. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I was so fascinated. I was like, people where I'm from don't make choices like this. This is amazing. Hmm. But... He was really passionate about this idea of revealing the humanity behind science, showing the role that it plays in everyone's lives and, and how you know, far-reaching it really is into all of our lives and how we all have a voice and something to say about science. And that was something that I didn't quite understand at that time, but I've, I've obviously really come to understand over the past decade. Ben was so gung-ho about this idea that he had of a storytelling show about science and so he put one together out of Queens and I went out to go see it I was thinking this is gonna be so boring 
but <laughs> I have to be a supportive friend. You're so you nice. You can tell I'm a really good friend. You're a very kind friend. <laughs> you're good. You're li- you. You gotten people jobs at the Forest Service. So you were being a supportive friend. Do you remember where the show was? It was actually at the Creek in the Cave, which is not a venue that we would revisit. And also because it doesn't exist in New York City anymore. And I went out there and I was sort of surprised how much I connected with the stories. And it was sort of a big light bulb moment for me in terms of you know science stories. Like you said earlier, they're really about people, just like all other stories. They're about you know, ambition and and loss and joy and heartbreak and all of those things that all of us tell stories about. And I kind of got excited the same way I had in high school as the sports editor about this idea of telling stories about something that I don't find interesting in a way that makes them interesting. Mm -hmm. What are the struggles that people that you work with typically come to you with? What are they looking for from you? We, we work with a lot of different types of storytellers, but I think a lot of the work we do is coaching scientists and other STEM professionals to tell their stories. And I think one of the big struggles for them tends to be vulnerability, bringing that out in their stories. And that's not everybody. There's some scientists who are great at being vulnerable and emotionally present. But I think in general, the culture of science is such that it discourages vulnerability Mm -hmm. and openness about emotion for many reasons and that was something that kind of surprised me when I first started working at Story Collider. Uh, I was really startled to learn that you know in writing their papers and lab reports scientists don't even use first person they speak in passive voice which didn't even make sense to me that boggled my mind (laughs) and so they're so trained to take themselves out of their work and to take themselves out of the story that sometimes we really have to work with them to be like, well, how did you feel in this moment? You know, what did this mean to you? And bring that out in the stories. That's so interesting because you look, we look back at science and to the lay people amongst us, right? Science is is built on people, right? The Albert Einsteins and the Ada Lovelaces and Neil deGrasse Tysons, like it is celebrity driven that brings science to people. But then when people get into science because they were inspired by Bill Nye as a kid and then they're taught every minute of every day to just pull themselves back out of it, it, it seems so antithetical. It's so cool that you guys are are trying to put the, the people back into it and get people reconnected to what drives them and what what they're so passionate about. I got to watch your your Ted Med talk and in the oh gosh from 2013 yeah and funny okay so here's the thing you and i were like 500 feet apart at that very moment because i was working at the kennedy center oh wow and one of the like it was the maybe the third year i was there and they were like everybody had to drop everything and help get this ted med thing up on on its feet and so i was watching it and like i was like ted med that sounds so oh shit i was upstairs (laughs) Yeah, it was funny. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was the response to that? Because that's that was a really interesting. That was you and Ben, right? Yeah, me yeah. and Ben. So it was really interesting to see how you guys were able to break down so easily for people what this process is. You know, now that you guys are established, now that Story Collider is this thing, how do you source people? How do you find the people to come 
engage with you and ask for your support and help and 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 obviously the last year notwithstanding of the insanity of the entire world but looking forward again now that we can start doing that knock on wood and all the things how do you let people know that it's safe and okay and good and healthy to talk about their work and their dreams as scientists yeah that's a great question i think in science these past two years there's been a real move to understanding that a different kind of communication with the public is needed uh, and necessary. I, oh, I, I didn't notice some... any problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. But I think people in science are realizing that they need to connect with the general public in a more human level, um, that there needs to be more of that relationship there. And so I think there's been, there's a culture shift that's happening right now oh, in good. science. You see a lot of younger scientists in particular are really making, putting a lot of effort into science communication these days. What's your title? Uh, As of 16 days ago, it's executive director. Executive director. So if, if Aaron, if executive director Aaron, like stepped into the, you know, parallel universe machine and came out on the other side. And you decided to take a different path or make it have a different response to your dad ripping up that story or not go into that class with Curtis or like what is the parallel universe version of you doing? Like what is the other what's the other path that you could have taken? For better or for worse. Oh man. That's a great question. You know, I've thought about this a little bit and I think about it mainly in terms of that first moment, that story I told and other experiences I had as a teenager, I think about what I would be like if I hadn't essentially had a crisis of faith Mm. uh, when I was growing up, if I hadn't started to question certain things about my faith and how it conflicted with who I was, who other people are. I think I don't know. I might be I might be writing Bible studies that you, that sold at the Christian bookstore. <laughs> that is much different. Although you're doing it, but you're still a writer. That's funny. That's interesting, right? So you're like, I could have been deeply prejudiced Christian author, but I'm still an author. Damn it, I'm still writing. Yeah, I think writing and storytelling for me, it's a compulsion. It's it's not really a, a choice. It's just something that I have to do, which I think a lot of, especially memoir-style writers, have a similar feeling. Are you writing a memoir? Is that happening? I'm always writing a memoir, (laughs) but nothing in particular. Blowjobs and other short stories. (laughs) How did you know the working title? Listen, (laughs) you can have it. I'm here for it. This was amazing, Aaron. Thank you so much for for hanging out with me. Thank you for for this time. This was this was great. <laughs> Thank you. This was great. I really appreciate you inviting me. If you were inspired by what we talked about today, you might be inspired by what our company, Building Momentum, does. We solve for impact. We're a creative problem solving agency that helps people gain the confidence and permission to solve problems on their own using a whole variety of tools to do so. 3D printing, laser cutting, welding, empathy, facilitation, drones, uh, electronics, robotics, dance, podcasts. If you have a problem, like we all do, we would love to be a part of solving it with you. 
Find us on the web at www.buildmo.com. That's www.buildmo.com.